Adam was created first, it indicates a, a priority, not a value, but a function. Uh, and I think that that is what Paul is trying to express in Ephesians chapter 5, that there's an order to everything. Uh, but the order isn't just men and women. The order starts with the sovereignty of God over his whole creation. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. Jake here with my co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. As always. How was your weekend? Uh, well, I was out preaching and uh, that went well. So I wasn't thrown out of the church I was preaching in. So I guess that was a plus, not a minus. That's good. Yeah. Uh, what did you preach about? Uh, I was preaching on Elijah. It's a message, the same message that I, I hate to admit this, but I do sometimes preach messages more than once. It's the same message I preached at the Theos Conference. The thin silence of God. Exactly. It's a great message. I don't think you need to feel any uh, any embarrassment about that at all. I think that, you know, you get a message sometimes and it, it fits more than one context. Well, I do have an untold number of them on file, so it isn't as if I spent my whole life doing one message. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. Um, well, let's see. I want to kick things off today uh, by... Uh, embodying our friend Michael uh, and bringing some toxic theology at the top of our conversation. We can talk about this tweet. And then from there, uh, I've got some direction that I want us to go in. So here's this tweet that sounds maybe good on the surface to some people, but let's talk about it a bit. The call of the Christian is not to be biblical. It is to be Christ-like. Well, what a load of tripe. Isn't that ridiculous? Like, where do people come up with this stupidity? I mean, really. What? Will someone please explain to me the, the, the logic of it? What are they really trying to say? So to be Christ-like, therefore, is to be unbiblical. That's really what's being said. Well, how do we know Christ? Well, the answer is we know him through the Bible. Right. So you can't be Christ-like without knowing Christ, and you can only know Christ through the Bible. So why do people spout such rubbish as this? It doesn't even make logical sense, let alone theological sense. But there right. you go. I guess they're, what they're trying to say is... Uh... Well, they're trying to say that they, they, they don't want to submit to the authority of the Bible... Uh, and really, uh, the underlying fact is they want to find a different Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they don't like the Christ that's portrayed in the Bible mm -hmm. because he's not the Christ of their, you know, liberal postmodern uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. And they prefer to refashion him uh, on the basis of their own conception. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my guess would be, too, that there's probably some like there's probably a view there of a canon within a canon so what they're perhaps saying is they like you know supposedly the jesus of the gospels and specifically maybe the sermon on the mount but they don't like paul's jesus or uh the jesus that's portrayed throughout the rest of the new testament um 
And so that would be my guess is that the, the way that they even view the Bible is different to how we do in terms of its authoritative nature yeah, but and ins- inspiration all the way through. If they like the Jesus of the Gospels, do they like the Jesus who, you know, took the whip to the people in the temple? Um, well, t- typically know. these people do love that passage. That's like their, go- their go-to okay. passage. Okay. <laughs> Prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the judgment of God upon unbelievers and the eternal fires of hell. How about that, Jesus of the Gospels? Yeah, I don't think they like that one. No, they don't like that. Really, they have their own idea. And this is how liberalism works. People people come up with their own idea of what they want to believe, and mm-hmm. they tailor make uh, you know, their own little Bible to go with it. They kind of X out all the parts that disagree with their position, mm-hmm. and they include the parts that do agree with it, which are, you know, few and far between in the end. Uh, and they create a whole different religion that isn't Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it's a waste of time trying to talk to people like that because you're, I mean, if you're talking to uh, Orthodox Christians, Christians who actually believe the truth, um, you can have a, um, you know, a productive discussion uh, uh, where you disagree with people on various topics of interpretation, whether you're Reformed or whether you're Arminian, for instance, as mm-hmm. an obvious example, um, or, uh, you know, what's the role of women in church government? There's another example. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of things like that that you can have a productive, respectful conversation with because we're mm-hmm. all operating from the same basis that the Bible contains the truth and we just want to interpret it correctly. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. But this is another thing entirely. This is, you might as well be, you know, it's like, uh, it's like having a dialogue between Putin and the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it, 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 there's no common ground. Mm-hmm. So why are we even talking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the calls that I hear uh, from some people right now is because I think a lot of people can sense the the split in the church. Um and there's calls for unity is what I'm hearing, which like I'm super into unity. I, I hate division. Uh, and it's, you know, as a pastor, I've spent significant portions of my time in certain seasons, like really fighting for the unity of, of the church. Um, not that anything, you know, grave has taken place, but there's just little things that, that creep in from time to time. Uh, but it seems like with some of these things, like we're, we're talking, you know, when we look at a tweet like that, there's not a lot of ground for unity because our, what we believe about foundational things are so different. Is it best to, um, in, in these kinds of scenarios to say, okay, well, you know, you guys are going to do your thing and we're, we're going to focus on what we believe to be true um, and kind like, of let that cookie crumble. It's like, how long do you spend arguing on your doorstep with Jehovah's Witnesses? Right. By and large, it's a waste of time. And I, I'm not trying to pass this off uh, in some you know superficial way because I spent years in, in liberal in institutions of higher learning, you know, mm-hmm. theologically, theological seminaries, and within uh, a very liberal denomination. And I. Uh, you know, I did my best, but 
they're not inter. I, I've got news for you. They're not interested in listening to what we're saying. For instance, mm-hmm. I'm just recording a, or I'm not recording. I'm developing a course for the university at a, we're starting a master's program, hopefully, and this is an so it's an advanced level course. And in the in the course of reading, I've noticed once again what I always saw during my my all my studies, my you know undergraduate, master's, doctoral studies, is that evangelical scholars, conservative scholars, always consult everybody, even opposing viewpoints. Liberal scholars never read anyone other than people espousing their own viewpoint. And it was it was there again. You know, here's this man uh, called. This is a slight digression, but here's this man called John Collins, who's one of the world's, maybe the world's leading authority in Jewish apocalyptic literature. I know that's not going to cause people to get up on the table and dance, you know, when you're saying that. But it's just a fact anyway. And so this guy, he's at Harvard. He's retired or emeritus. He's in, is a few years older than I am, so he's old. And, uh, and uh, you know, he's authority. But when he comes to discuss uh, the book of uh, Revelation, for instance, uh, in spite of the fact that his last revision of his book was in 2016, he never reads or accesses Greg Beal. Now, Greg Beal is the world's leading authority on eschatology and, and mm-hmm. book of Revelation and the relationship of Daniel to Revelation as well as being an authority on the relationship of Jewish apocalyptic to Revelation. I know all this is flying over everybody's head, but what I'm trying to say is that here's this guy at Harvard, Collins, and Beale is well aware of his work, cites it, deals with it, you know, and he's writing on his side. But Collins passes right over it, and the only he, he makes the most bizarre assumptions about the book of Revelation. It's weird. Uh, but the only people he's quoting... And they're not even liberal scholars. It's far left liberal scholars like John Dr. Crossan and Bart Ehrman and people like this that, you know, that they wow on too many carries, you know, before they ever wrote anything. And uh, uh, it, it's just it's like you're not even uh, the the whole side of the picture. You're, you're just so. So this is the problem with, you know, getting back to the quote that you gave about, you know, we need to be Christ-like, not biblical. Um, you know, these are people who, they they live in an echo chamber. They're not interested in listening to anybody. They're, they don't even know who exists that dis- disagrees with them. <laughs> nobody with any degree of intelligence could possibly have a different point of view. That's, that's a definition of stupidity, you know? I mean, even if you have a point of view, if you're intelligent and smart, you'll acknowledge that there are other ways of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I interact with with liberal theology all the time in order to, to point out where it's wrong, but you have to interact with it. So anyway, I, I so I don't think I don't think there's a lot of point in in wasting time trying to argue with these people. I mean we can refute them and we mm-hmm. can say, look, this is why they're wrong and we need to do that. Mm-hmm. in order to be able to provide the church with sound teaching. Mm-hmm. But if you think you're going to win any of them over, then you're whistling Dixie. I mean, that ain't going to happen. They're not even listening. They don't even care. It's mm-hmm. like, does do the people at CNN tune in on Fox when they go off shift? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Or right. 
Yeah, it is a really irresponsible thing to say because essentially what you're doing by that is just opening people up to uh, the notion that they can have Christ of their own making um, and that they can accurately know Christ apart from the Bible. That seems to me where it leads. Like I once got in a discussion with a, a guy who uh, I would say leans more liberal in his theology, a um, bit more postmodern. And we were talking about how when Jesus said to the disciples in uh, the Last Supper um, about the Holy Spirit coming and he would guide them or lead them into all truth. I take that scripture as uh, essentially like laying the foundational doctrine for the church um, through the apostles, that the Holy Spirit would help them in that. And, right. and maybe I'm mistaken on that. Oh, I agree. You're right. Okay. He, he took it more as a general promise to all of us, not just to the... Um, to the 12 who were in the room, uh, but as the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth. And it's kind of this, like this thinking of like truth as progressive. And so as time goes by, the Holy Spirit is progressively leading us into more and more truth. Like another example that connects to that, to help me understand his views later on, he sent me a video of, uh, <clears throat> a liberal, um, teacher who was looking at first John and, uh, helping us to quote unquote, you know, understand Christ. And he literally opened up the teaching by talking about how one of his presuppositions is the fact that because John lived longer than Paul, uh, he, more time had gone by. Um, he had a more accurate insight into the ways of Christ, the character of Christ. And I'm sure there was probably more to it, but I, like that was pretty much the, that was the gist of, you know, part of the argument. Um, and I suppose that connects to that same understanding of that scripture in regards to the Holy Spirit leading us in, into truth. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, um, on all of that? Well, you see, I, I, first of all, um, you know, those that, who is it said, those that fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to, those who fail to learn the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. Mm -hmm. um, 300 years of liberal theology and, and, you know, they embarked on a quest <clears throat> to find the historical Jesus. Uh, and, um, it ended after, you know, a couple hundred years in the acknowledgement of a man by Rudolf Bultmann, who was a very, very famous German New Testament scholar, um, that the only thing we can know about Jesus is that he existed. That's it. Mm -hmm. And some people didn't even think that. So that's a dead end. When you throw the authority of the Bible overboard and try to find out who, another Jesus or who Jesus was outside of the Bible, mm -hmm. then you will wind up with nothing. That's mm -hmm. and, and, you know, why repeat the mistake? You know, if you want to go down that road, other people have already gone down it, spent a lifetimes of academic study and all the rest of it and come up with nothing. So that's a waste of time, and I think that's it's very, very sad. But the fact is that the Bible does give us an accurate account, and there's all sorts of reasons why the biblical account can be verified, you know, can be regarded as um, accurate and mm -hmm. uh, reliable, and so on. Uh, 
And the, the, the reason that people don't want to hear that is because they don't like what the Bible says. That's the point. It's the sin nature. They don't like what the Bible says, and therefore their solution is to discredit the Bible. It's just like, you know, if you have a friend who tells you the truth and you really don't want to hear it, if you're a nasty person or an insecure person, you all start, you know, spreading nasty rumors about the, per the, the other guy because you don't, you want to discredit him because you don't like what he's saying, even though he's speaking truth. And that's how people treat the Bible. And you shoot yourself in the foot that way and wind up with nothing. Yeah. What was the beginning of the Liberal Theological Project? Well, it, it really originated uh, in the so-called Enlightenment, you know, as, mm -hmm. as you, you have to, you know, sort of look at the history of Western thought. But um, the medieval period was, uh, you know, Europe was uh, heavily Catholic, uh, influenced by the, the Catholic Church. It was very pious. There wasn't anything as atheism or even the intrusion of other religions or whatever. And then uh, somewhere around the 14th, 15th century, that started to change. And you had all sorts of upheavals, one of which was the Reformation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that, that upset the um, social authority of the Catholic Church. I think about, uh, you know, Afghanistan. I'm not, I'm not, you know, comparing Afghanistan to the medieval mm -hmm. Europe, but it, it just in the sense closed system. You can't break into it. You know, mm -hmm. if you're in it, you've got no access to, you know, any, any worldview on the outside of it. Well, mm -hmm. when it starts to break down, then you have all these other things coming in. The Reformation uh, undermined the authority of the Catholic Church, but uh, so did the uh, Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment being, you know, the ex exaltation of human reason, or the idea that uh, you, you know, truth doesn't come from a, a revelation of God or revelation through the church that we find truth out by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, you know, that's a broader theme within Western civilization. And it's, it's not entirely wrong either, but out of that, it began, you know, it, there was an application to theology because theology was the queen of sciences. I mean, it was at the heart of every university curriculum. So people began to re-examine theology, and, and it wasn't too long before, I can't remember when the earliest books were written that undermined or questioned the authority of the Bible. It was probably before 1700, so it was a long time ago. And then the more time went on, uh, the more that multiplied uh, and became a tidal wave. Um, but the, you know, to put it in perspective, uh, the... It, it, it kind of got more and more critical, you know, of the Bible to the point where there's virtually nothing left. And then the last hundred years or so have seen a kind of a grand reversal of that because so many of the conclusions that uh, liberal uh, biblical scholarship came to were proven to be incorrect through things like archaeological discovery, which... Mm -hmm over and over and over again, that the New Testament record was accurate, you know, that the Old Testament was tested and so on. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's a whole sort of battle that's still being fought to this day. Uh, and, and it has to be fought. Uh, 
but I, and I do believe that we're to follow truth. Uh, I mean, I do believe that what Jesus in the in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> when he said to those guys, "The Spirit will lead you into truth," mm-hmm. I believe he was talking about establishing the written record of, of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I also believe the Holy Spirit still leads us into truth. Mm-hmm. And and and, uh, and as Christians, we have no fear of truth, of following truth. Because we know it leads to the man who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. And uh, so we don't have to be anti-intellectual. Uh, in fact, you know, we, we have to be pretty as smart as we can be to fight these battles. Um, but part of the job of leaders of the church is to keep the, this kind of contamination out of the church. We fight the battles out there uh, in order to stop it from coming into the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of these, um, one of the things that has been drastically affected uh, by the rise of liberal theology is how the church now thinks about marriage, which is a subject that I want to broach with you. So uh, it's not necessarily a given now that you would walk into a church and that their belief about marriage would be what the Bible seems to plainly set forth in regards to the lifelong union between one man and one woman that now seems to be, uh, well, our definition of marriage is much more open, uh, in some churches. And so, uh, we hold to that traditional biblical view. Uh, in fact, I just taught on this yesterday in our church. Um, and I know that you spent quite a bit of time thinking and writing about the subjects of sex and marriage. You have a couple chapters in it, uh, on it in your new book. Um, so let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the biblical vision for marriage. Um, and I'd love not to just, you know, touch on kind of how the world is getting it wrong, but even how maybe the church is, uh, not quite plumbing the depths of what marriage is meant to be. Um, and how much of a gift it can be for us. Yeah, uh, well, um, I think that, you know, the way Paul approaches it in Ephesians 5, he talks about marriage as being the closest human uh, um, parallel Mm -hmm. uh, or manifestation, whatever you want to call it, to the union of of the believer with Christ or Christ in the church. And so it's important, you know, obviously God wants to manifest something, demonstrate something within um, the marriage covenant. Uh, and in it, uh, part of what he wants to demonstrate is the, uh, the call to uh, carry the cross and lay our lives down uh, so leadership in marriage, uh, uh, the, the headship or leadership of the man is expressed by his willingness to lay his life down for his wife. So the New Testament commands the man to agape uh, his wife. But never once does the New Testament command a woman to agape her husband. It uses uh, another verb, filio, uh, agape being that particular Greek word that the New Testament writers kind of seized on to express the self-giving, unconditional love of Christ for his church. So that is something that uh, is to be carried by the man 
and uh, and and that sets an example or tone for everything else that we do. So leadership from a Christian perspective, uh, as it is uh, walked out in the marriage covenant, uh, should the same kind of leadership characteristics should be present uh, by anyone who carries government or leadership in a relationship. For instance, a church leader uh, or even um, a Christian who is operating within the business community uh, is supposed to express that servant leadership, that consideration that for other people, that putting of the other person ahead of your own narrow self-interest. And um, so I think that, 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 and then the other side of it is the idea of submission. And all these things are such, such hot topics today. But mm-hmm. the Greek word for submission, hupotasso, or uh, it, in this Ephesians, the way it's used, the idea is um, you place yourself under an order. It's a voluntary decision to place yourself under a structure or order that God has created. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, there's another word, hupakuo, which means to obey. And Paul uses that, children obey parents. But mm-hmm. when the wife, he says submit. But the submission implies, it. first of all, it's a voluntary decision. It's not you're being told what to do. It's you decide what to do. And what you decide to do isn't to obey your husband so much as to place yourself in the midst of an order that God has created. And the order that God has created is that the man lays his life down and expresses leadership that way. And the wife trusts her husband to make uh, to, to, to pull off that leadership in a way that is beneficial for her. Uh, and and that's a step of faith. So, uh, and it all goes back, I think, to Genesis, where the curse was expressed in the fact that Adam would rule in an abusive way over Eve, and Eve would respond, the verb, the Hebrew verb, desire for her husband, means a kind of a manipulative control. Mm-hmm. So that the, the, the fall means that the perfect order of God which was the man would lay his life down for his wife and she would trust uh, his, his uh, intentions in, mm-hmm. in that and the whole thing would work together as they both bring mm-hmm. our into the covenant. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, the man becomes a bully and the woman manipulates and controls to protect mm-hmm. herself, which mm-hmm. is exactly the problem in 99.9% of marriage counseling to this very day. So I think that, I think that we need to go back to Ephesians 4 uh, and we need to kind of try to explain what is this. And I was preaching at a wedding in England a, uh, a year or so ago, and the the um, lady that was officiating at the wedding, um, she was a vicar, and I had been speak on this sort of hot hot button text of Ephesians mm-hmm. about the wife and the husband, and but the way that I expressed the way that I expressed it. The, the, the lady uh, came up to me at the end and said, you know, I really appreciated you put a new perspective on that. And I thought, well, I really didn't put a new perspective on it. All right. I did was correctly ex- express what Paul was saying, because people misread it to say that the man, you know, gets all the power and is a bulldozer and the wife just has to, you know, get what she can. And that's absolutely not what Paul is saying. Yeah. When you explain it the way that it is, it sounds like a really... Uh, wonderful structure um, that 
causes both the husband and the wife to flourish together. Do you see Paul's, um, do you see Paul's, uh, writings in Ephesians five as, as what God originally intended in Genesis? Like when, when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden, had sin never entered into the equation, would it be something akin to what Paul sets forth in Ephesians? Or, or would it have been more egalitarian? I think that that is, I think, because if when the curse is lifted, the whole, the whole storyline of the Bible is the restoration of what was lost in Eden. Mm-hmm. And that's another whole topic. But that's, it's why the last two chapters of the Bible are bookends with the first two chapters. They fulfill mm-hmm. what was there, you know, the new Jerusalem fulfills Eden. So God, in one sense, is trying to get back to the order that he had created. And there, so in, in that sense, uh, Adam was created first. It indicates a, a priority, not a value, but a function. Uh, and I think that that is what Paul is trying to express in Ephesians chapter 5, that there's an order to everything. Uh, but the order isn't just men and women. The order starts with the sovereignty of God over his whole creation. So that sort of orderly status or nature of creation comes from the very throne of God himself. In other words, we don't live in an egalitarian universe. We live in a a universe where God is absolute sovereign over everything. And there are ranks of angels and archangels. And Mm -hmm. the the relation of humanity to the angels is explored in Hebrews, the first couple chapters. That's an important topic. Um, how does all this order fit together? Uh, and you can look, you know, if you're an astronomer or something, I mean, you can, uh, astrophysicist, you know, you can look at, at the order of the universe and how the whole thing hangs together and the astronomically low possibility of life on Earth as it exists is like, you know, one to the, you know, and then there's another that is incalculable, uh, but God created it, the whole thing, and put the conditions in place so that we have life here. That's all part of God's order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Satan comes in to upset the order mm-hmm. and in every possible way to upset the order of marriage, to, you know, take the structure out of it, which which he did in the fall, which means that both Adam and um two independent warring factions and Mm -hmm. either of them gets what they want out of it. Um, Satan upsets every possible relationship to get into. He upsets the order that God has created. Uh, He upsets the order by saying, well, let's have marriage with, you know, two men or two women, or for that matter, let's have three, four, five or 10 in a marriage, you know, or let's bestiality, whatever, you know. Um, And, and so, that's upsetting of the order that God mm-hmm. had created. Um, and ultimately, uh, we we are only at peace with ourselves and with one another to the degree that we submit to God's order. Yeah, this is good. This just brings up a couple of things. Number one, uh, there was a, there was, um, in 2017, there, for the first time, uh, there was the first quote unquote family in California to have three dads written down on um, the birth certificate of their surrogate born child. 
so the 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 potential rise of polyamory uh, is uh, a very real possibility. I don't know if that's going to be the next big wave in culture or not, but I think it is important that um, with, that we acknowledge that when you break from God's order and marriage is no longer built upon the foundation of divine decree, now it is up for reconstructing however we see fit. We can you know recompose it according to our personal desires. And so if, you know, our desires for a polyamorous relationship, that means once we've redefined marriage, now we open up the door to redefine family. Um, so that is uh, an interesting thing. Uh, two, two questions. Uh, is there any theological significance to Eve being made from Adam's rib? Like you can come across commentaries that say, you know, because it was the rib, there's this, uh, uh, and they're not necessarily saying, you know, um, that that equals like an egalitarian relationship, but there's like, they draw theological significance that she comes from his side. So it's this, it's this, uh, equal partnership thing. And absolutely we believe in the partnership between men and women, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but I was reminded of uh, this verse in first Corinthians 15, as you were talking, uh, when Paul is kind of, you know, proclaiming his eschatological vision, God has put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is uh, accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So that kind of at first glance seems to portray some, you know, kind of like flattening uh, egalitarian existence in the new creation where we're, you know, God is filling all in all, but also in the new Testament, you have this picture of, um, uh, reward in the new creation and some are going to be entrusted with more, some with less. So anyway, I just threw a whole lot at you. Um, so, so pick out what you want. I think the passage in, in one Corinthians 15 and 28 is really important because it indicates that there's an order within the Trinity. The passage you just quoted indicates there's not a, even an egalitarianism within the Trinity. Mm. And I think that's where it's in the nature of God himself, as we believe it as Christians, that there is an order uh, where one part, you know, one party has certain responsibilities, another party has different responsibilities. Uh, you know, one party has the uh, ability or responsibility to establish a direction and the other party follows that direction. And it seems that that's exactly how Jesus described his relationship with the Father. Mm -hmm. And so his submission is the model for, you know, so if, if, if I say, well, you know, if, if, a, if a woman comes and says, well, I don't want to submit in marriage, or if someone comes to me and says, well, I don't want to submit to a church leader, or I don't want to submit to my employer, or whatever, then I'll say, well, Jesus chose to submit to the Father. He mm -hmm. provided the model for us. So that's part of God's order. It seems mm -hmm. to be built into the very nature of who God is. Uh, and if there weren't that order, then we wouldn't even have a cosmos. The universe exists on the basis of the order that God has placed in, in it. Wow. Um, even from a biological point of view, I mean, what... We have a friend who's one of the world's top astrophysicists that she holds a chair at Durham University in England. And, you know, she does uh, uh, sort of devotional talks for the British Broadcasting Corporation on uh, creation and this sort of thing. And I never actually caught one. I, she does talks on, 
you know, uh, for church uh, groups on mm -hmm. the cosmos. And I would love to listen to one of those. But I know that part of it is going to be the expression of the incredible order that God has put in creation that allows the possibility of life as we have it. So that order exists. You know, we, we're so, you know, in our modern Western world, it's all about me, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. it's all about us. And we don't have any sense of, of we are just part of an enormous picture. And that should be an encouragement to us as Christians that the God who created all of this cosmos is interested even in us. But we just make it about us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's incredible. I was reading an article in The Economist this morning um, about constitutions around the world. They're getting longer and longer and longer. And, and, the mm -hmm. whole, and what people are writing everybody's rights into the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So one constitutional scholar wisely pointed out that when everybody's rights get written into it, then in the end, no one's will, will you, you, you can't possibly satisfy everybody's demands all at the same time. Mm -hmm. you know, look how much trouble the, uh, you Americans have in just figuring out whether you have the right to bear arms, so the, 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 the rights that you do have, right? But we're talking about, oh, you know, I have a right to neurodiversity in Chile. I don't know what neurodiversity is, but, <laughs> and all sorts of other things. You know, you have the constitutional right to, you know, be have a decent standard of living and to be treated this way and that. And the next thing, you know, that's you. you so the, the problem is that as people, we, you know, we're so focused on all the rights that we want to have that we don't like anything that stands in the way of getting what we want. That's sinful fallen human nature. That's why we don't like the idea of authority and order. That's why we don't like the, the biblical conception of marriage. We'd rather have a marriage where you can come in of, into it, you can come out of it, you can have an open marriage, and marriage is, you know, potentially several people at once or whatever. Why? Because there's no restriction on my ability to do what I want. But what happens is when everyone's pursuing their own rights, is it becomes a free-for-all, and inevitably, the people with the most power triumph. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. The people who have the most power win out in the end, and might becomes right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we should be grateful for a biblical concept of marriage, where the person in authority, unlike what usually happens in the world where people in authority wind up oppressing other people and, you know, uh, treating them badly, even in democratic societies, you know, that happens. Um, we should be grateful for a biblical structure, which says that authority is to be expressed by the laying down of people's lives. And it's also a reason why in church, we should not tolerate spiritual abuse by Christian leaders who abuse people or take advantage of their authority, that is an abomination to the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's another topic. Yeah, I think the uh, the rise of fighting for rights has something to do with the fluidity of identity and almost the limitless nature of identity. Um, identity now being kind of un as unlimited as, as our own imagination. And what I'm seeing is in the West is as soon as an identity can be granted legitimacy, that then opens the door for it to enter into some kind of legal discussion about what the rights are surrounding that identity. 
So for example, going back to the polyamorous subject, I know uh, that in a couple cities, I think in Massachusetts, uh, polyamorous domestic partnerships have now been legally recognized. And I don't see any reason why, uh, why polyamorous marriage couldn't logically be up to, for debate in our society, if indeed it starts to get viewed as a legitimate identity. And I don't see any reason why we wouldn't grant it legitimacy as an identity, because it's the same uh, logic that we would apply to uh, any other um, uh, deviation away from the biblical view of uh, sexuality. Uh, and those things are granted legitimacy. If I have a transgender identity or um, my identity is homosexual, you know, whatever my identity, my proclaimed identity is, that when that's granted uh, legitimacy, then obviously the legal discussions begin. And so I think that's why, it's a, you know, it's, it's a funny point about the, the growing length of constitutions, because the more identities there are, the more, the more rights there are supposedly to um, legally protect uh, rights being, you know, get married or um, adopt children or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and so that's an interesting thing. And it's only until I think we come to the conclusion as a society that maybe identity is not quite as uh, fluid as we thought. D is that train going to stop? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, um, once you've, you know, once you've opened the door, once you've moved away from God's order, then, uh, you know, anarchy, remember the upsetting of order and the introduction of anarchy is Satan's main goal. So he will bring anarchy, confusion, and so on. But you've got to remember that the result of that anarchy is not freedom for everyone, which is what people think. It's freedom for anyone to do what they want. The ultimate result of that is the rule of people who, who have the power in, in society. And, uh, and for instance, with polyamory, my guess is the, if you went to wherever this is in Massachusetts, you would not find a situation with one woman and five men. You'd find a situation with five women uh, and one man. That's what you find. And uh, but but in I can almost guarantee that in the nature of the relationship, the men will be dominant because once you move out, that's how it works. You know, it's because that's how, you know, when you take male sexuality away from the, the confines of marriage, that's how it works. You know, when women are not looking for 10 different men to have relationships with. But women are more sensible than men in general, as you and I both know. And if we don't, wives remind us. But women are, you know, want one decent relationship. But but men who are unhinged, you know, when their sexuality is unhinged, they'll they'll just want as many as, as possible. So, you know, you don't have a situation, you know, with, you know, if you have um, uh, an orgy, you have awful to even be talking about these things but you know you've got a man in bed with several women you don't have three men in bed with one woman that just doesn't happen so what what i'm the point i'm making is even in that it's only a doorway to male domination that's what i anyway i i think 
So women, if there are women, I think women are more sensible, like I I said, but I mean, I think if there are women that think, well, that's the way to go, I think they'll get a rude awakening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're probably generally right. I think there are outliers to that, uh, especially in like radical feminist um, circles, you know, where uh, where it's maybe the view is that um, it's more permissible for, for men to explore, um, you know, a broad variety of sexual experiences than it is for women. And so they, you know, buck up against that. And, um, I mean, I, even, uh, six months ago I was snowboarding and I was on the mountain standing in line for food, um, and went back to my table. And then my friend comes back and he's like, man, this girl in front of me that was literally bragging about having sex with like two or three men last night to our friend. So I think the further we move away from uh, Christianity's influence upon society in the West, the door remains open for all kinds of crazy scenarios. But as you say, uh, generally speaking, you're, you're probably right about how that's going to go. So uh, any theological significance to the rib? No, I, I can't. I, I I think that's reading stuff into it. I really, uh, I haven't recently looked at the Hebrew of the beginning of Genesis, but um, I doubt there's a theological significance to it. It's just expressing a, a, a truth that that God created woman, uh, you know, that God created woman out of man. There's it's the, it's the order of creation it was very important to the Hebraic thinking. It's why mm. oldest son gets the twice the inheritance. Um, so, uh, Adam is, is, is created first, uh, and then Eve, and that's, that's the concept that the text is expressing. It's all part of God's order, but when we see it within the bigger picture, redemptive picture of the Bible as a whole, we see it actually provides a very broad and fruitful and wonderful place for, uh, women to flourish, um, in, in a, in a structure where men truly serve them, protect them, and give them fulfillment. I guess suppose uh, even if there were some theological significance, it doesn't necessarily negate anything about God's order. No, it wouldn't. Very interesting stuff, my friend. Have we solved all the world's problems today? One week at a time. <laughs> we'll drag this out a little bit. Indeed. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.